we'll look at chapter 1 at a few verses as we uh, are continuing in our series on uh, The Reason for God, the book written by Dr. Timothy Keller. And we come tonight to a transition point. Uh, up to this point, we've been, hand- we've been dealing primarily uh, with objections to the Christian faith and handling the tough topics of things like the problem of evil and how can Christianity be the only true religion. How can we trust the Bible and other matters? Well, tonight we uh, change direction and we move towards the, the positive side of advocating reasons with arguments why people should embrace the Christian faith. In the intermission of Keller's book, the, the midway point between the defending the faith and commending the faith, uh, Dr. Keller makes an effort to define which Christianity that he actually commends to people. Many people are confused as to what true Christianity is because of all the divisions of the major Roman Catholic faith and the Orthodox faith and the various Protestant denominations. But Tim Keller does a good job of helping us to focus on those certain beliefs uh, that we all agree upon that have been historically recognized as Christian doctrine perhaps best expressed in the Apostles' Creed and other forms of our ancient creeds, and uh, which all Christians of all stripes can affirm the belief in one God, who is the Creator, uh, who is manifest in a trinity. Uh, We believe in the sinful fall of humankind uh, and the redemption that comes with Jesus Christ, who is both God and man. And we also affirm the resurrection of Christ as well as his return and coming judgment. And in this in summary form is what we are commending to all people in the historic Christian faith. Now, Keller, interestingly, in his book, he's not making tight theological case. He's not using a lot of data and text from Scripture uh, to defend the Christian faith as much as, at least in the chapter we'll consider tonight, pointing to the clues that we find in creation and in the natural world and in human experience that commend to us, point to us, evidence for the existence of God. And so I've chosen Romans 1, verses 18 through 20, because here we find a similar uh, case in which Paul is justifying God in in his declaration that all men are without excuse. Please follow as I read Romans 1, beginning in verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be made known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made known, so that that what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Let us pray. Father, you indeed have made all things well, and you have left evidence of your existence and of your goodwill towards us in the creation and in the human heart. And we pray for wisdom as we look into these things from your word and Uh, consider the teachings of a learned man in Dr. Keller. We pray that you would shed light on these topics and help us to apprehend them and to comprehend uh, the remarkable truth of 
of your reality and your presence with us. And Father, we would also not forget to pray for the Reach family, that you would be near them in this hour. Comfort them. We pray for healing to Bill. Give wisdom to the physicians as they tend to his needs. We pray that you would bring about uh, a speedy and full healing and that uh, you would minister to them in body and spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. My wife tells the story of her cousin, who on one occasion as a little girl was playing hide-and-seek with her older brothers. She thought she'd found the perfect hiding place. She was just small enough to fit inside a storage cabinet underneath the kitchen counter. But one problem. She left all the pots and pans outside on the kitchen floor. And though she was out of sight, her location was quite clear to the naked eye. And entering the kitchen, her brothers, finding the clues scattered all around, promptly proceeded to bar the door shut and enjoy several uh, hours of peace and quiet before their parents arrived home. We cannot see God. But we find clues of his existence all around us. The creation has left for us his fingerprints to discover. Now, there are some who would attempt to bar the door shut in order to keep God out of our affairs. In his intermission, Keller responds to such attacks by atheists by offering what he calls sufficient reasons to credibly believe and embrace the Christian faith. There are some people, some skeptics, such as Richard Dawkins, who would insist on an airtight, logical, empirical argumentation for the existence of God. Now, Keller, in his work, uh, appeals to the works of philosophers, both Christian and non-Christian, in his efforts to demonstrate that Dawkins and his allies are attempting to evaluate Christianity with what may be called strong rationalism. Now, strong rationalism is the belief that one cannot believe any proposition unless it's proved rationally, by logic, or empirically through sense perception. They would insist that proof requires arguments that are so strong that there would be no reason at all to disbelieve it. Now, you may notice that this is more than what is required in our courts of law, uh, which require evidence in order to convict someone of a crime beyond a reasonable doubt, not no doubt whatsoever. And in fact, Keller points out that many scholars uh, reject strong rationalism because it's virtually impossible to defend. It cannot even live up to its own standards. It assumes this kind of view from nowhere, this this myth of of 100% pure objectivity, as though they could see everything as it really is, uh, rather than coming from the human subjects that we are. Well, as an alternative, Tim Keller offers what he calls critical rationality, by which we may judge and evaluate arguments and reasons for the Christian faith. And in critical rationality, he assumes uh, that we can make arguments 
that will be acceptable to most rational people. And in the way, he concedes that there's no argument that will be completely persuasive to everybody. Even still, there are some systems of belief that are more reasonable than others. And so, as we do with scientific theories, uh, but we, we concede that we contend that belief in God can be tested and justified, even if not proven, to everybody's satisfaction. Belief in God leads us to expect the very things we observe. The existence of the universe that is governed by rational laws. The existence of human subjects, people who have a moral conscience to read and to interpret the things that we observe. In contrast, the theory that there is no God would not lead us to expect these very things. When a Russian cosmonaut returned from space and reported that he had not found God, C.S. Lewis responded that this was like Hamlet going into the attic of his castle looking for Shakespeare. If there is a God, he would not just be another object in creation for us to analyze in the laboratory. Rather, God relates to us as a playwright relates to the characters in his play. And so the characters can only know as much about the playwright as he chooses to reveal himself in the play. Lewis elsewhere says that he believes in God, as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Well, in that same spirit, we are seeking that which, that which makes most sense. Which account of reality gives us the most explanatory power? We all sense that things are not as they should be. People are both flawed and yet somehow great. We have this longing for love and beauty that nothing in this world can fulfill. We all have this deep need to know meaning and purpose in our lives. And so, we can ask, which worldview best accounts for these things? Well, we would contend that the biblical view of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration is the best explanation. And so, what we ask our, our skeptic friends to do is to put Christianity on like spectacles in order to see reality from a Christian point of view. And as he is in all of his correspondence, Tim Keller is very gracious and very respectful and gives people the benefit of the doubt, which I would commend to all of us in our engagement with unbelievers. But at the same time, we need to remember these very stern words from Romans 1 that indicts unbelievers for their culpable rejection of God. From, from the scripture point of view, people are ignorant, but they are neither innocent nor naive towards God's truth. Furthermore, people both need the truth as a challenge to their ignorance, but they also need something else. People need a new heart in order to believe God's truth. And so, 
our call tonight as Christians is to make a positive case for Christianity, but also rely upon God's Spirit to do the work that we cannot do to convert the soul. Well, in Romans 1, Paul offers a very stinging indictment upon the wickedness of men towards whom God's wrath is coming and will capitulate in the great day of judgment to come. And, of course, Paul, in many ways, is is referring to man's godless behavior and his immorality and his rebellion, but he's also referring to man's disposition towards the truth, the attitude of the heart towards God's truth. In fact, he says here that God's wrath is being stirred up by men's tendency to suppress the truth. The idea behind this term is of a guard holding something captive, and in this case, holding truth captive. The same term will be used later on in Romans 7, verse 6, to describe how we have been held captive by the law. And so the problem that that Paul suggests is not so much ignorance, but knowledge rejected. A denial of the truth that is apparent to everybody. You know, on a few occasions I have engaged with non-believers to consider the truth claims of Christianity. And I remember on one such occurrence, I met with a young man who I kind of inadvertently backed into a corner and in hindsight realized that probably wasn't a good idea. But in our discussion, he actually conceded to me that Christianity provided the better explanation for creation, for the human condition, and for our our need for redemption. Much better than Judaism, Buddhism, or the various other religions he was flirting with had to offer. And yet, he had so prejudiced himself against the faith of his youth that he refused to accept it. Likewise, in a article that came out about a year or two ago by one of John Piper's sons, Abraham Piper gives the account of a few years ago how he actually turned away from the Christian faith for a season. And in in hindsight, in this article, he admits that he offered up this intellectual front of all these apparent objections he had to the Christian faith. But it was really a cover for his true desire which was wanting an excuse to live an immoral lifestyle. And thankfully, Abraham did repent and is once again following Christ. Now, that's not to say there are not legitimate questions to bring, to bring against Christianity, to evaluate it. But we need to understand that every intellectual question comes in the context of a fallen human heart that the Scripture says is disinclined to believe the truth. Well, not only do men suppress the truth, they hate the truth. John, in his gospel, says that men love darkness because their deeds were evil. Men hate the light because it exposes their wicked deeds. Hopefully you've never had the horrifying experience of turning on the light in a roach-infested room. Years ago, I was delivering Christmas gifts to such a house in Houston, Texas. And as soon as the light went on, hundreds of these critters fled to every corner and every uh, shadowed path. And in like manner, men flee the light 
trying, seeking refuge under cover of darkness. But God's word says that on Judgment Day, everything will be brought into the light. Every secret will be revealed. Those who hate the truth will not be able to suppress it forever. Well, Paul in Romans 3 will go on to quote the Psalms and the prophets with these words. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Scripture is quite clear on this, that man in his sin rebels, rebels against the truth and has no natural desire to seek the living God. And so he is predisposed. He is blind to the evidence all around him, testifying to God's existence. And yet, as Christians, we have a responsibility to shine the light on all those clues, to help people to see it and to find their way to God as he leads them by his Spirit. Well, verses 19 and 20 of chapter 1 Paul makes his case to support his conclusion that men are without excuse. He says here that the knowledge of God has been made plain, first in the creation and all the things that have made, and later on in chapter 2, the evidence of the human heart that testifies to the reality of God's law. And to help supplement our case tonight, I will use Keller's arguments from his chapter on the clues of God from his book. Now, skeptics may cry out that there is not enough evidence that uh, God has not made an airtight case for his existence. Paul would argue that God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made. Scripture argues that there is plenty of evidence testifying to God's existence. Well, Keller, in his effort to support this idea of critical rationality, offers about half a dozen or so clues or proofs to God's existence. The first one he offers is the Big Bang. Now, virtually all scientists agree that the universe began about 15 billion years ago in an unimaginable flash of energy emerging from an infinitely small point called a singularity. Now, the answer to the question of why there is something rather than nothing, we would say is best explained by the reality of a creative, intelligent being who began setting everything in motion. A second clue to the reality of God is the existence of life. There are, in fact, at least 15 cosmic constants in the universe. Things like the speed of light, the force of gravity, the atomic forces in the nucleus of an atom, very properties of water. All of these things have to be just right in order for life to exist. In fact, scientists have realized that all of these constants fall within a very, very narrow range. If any of these constants fall out of that narrow range, then life becomes impossible. The very universe that we have becomes uh, impossible to exist. Recently, my 
wife and I purchased a very large vehicle that just barely fits in our garage. So we can just barely get it in there to close the garage door and then squeeze around the front to get through the door into our, into our living room. And so something like that, maybe how we may view these cosmic constants. Scientists refer to these things as the anthropic principle, or perhaps the Goldilocks principle. Everything not, it's not too hot, it's not too cold, everything is just right for life to emerge and exist. Now, the skeptic counters to this, um, the overwhelming odds against life emerging by contending that our universe is just one of trillions. And so if all these different random universes have different constants and different measures of forces, ours just happens to be the one that's just right for life to emerge on planet Earth. Well, we could argue back that there's no evidence for multiple universes. But I think John Leslie, a philosopher quoted in Cowher's book, does a good job of giving us an illustration whereby a man, imagine a man sentenced to be executed by 50 expert marksmen who are no more than 10 feet away from him. And imagine all these marksmen firing and missing. And we need to draw the conclusion. Was this a chance, random event? Or was there a conspiracy to avoid hitting the sentenced man? Likewise, in explaining the origin of the universe, is origin of chance more reasonable than positing an intentional, powerful, creative being who set things in motion and brought order to the world in which we live. Well, another case looking at creation that Tim Keller offers is the regularity of nature. How is it that we can rely upon gravity, upon the boiling point and the freezing points of water, other than the fact that God, there's a God who made an orderly universe in which we have to dwell. In fact, many historians have made the case that the very existence of modern science arose out of a Christian civilization because we needed a worldview of order from a benevolent God of reason who has established this world that is reliable and can be depended upon to be orderly and to be governed under law. And so the very foundation of science rests in a Christian worldview. A fourth clue is beauty. Just as we listen to the beauty of the violin and the piano and the beautiful voice singing, we are inspired by great works of art and beauty. They instinctively assume the existence of truth, justice, good and evil, right and wrong. But if there is no God, there's no such thing as meaning or purpose. We would be here by mere accident. Beauty, if there is no God, is merely a neurological response, a hardwired response to uh, particular data. The significance of music would be mere illusion. What we call love, just a biochemical response that we have inherited 
from our ancestors. To challenge back, we consider the very fact that our innate desires for food, shelter, friendship are met with objects that meet those real needs. Lewis has a quote in Mere Christianity where he says, if I, find a desire, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. Well, it's at this point that Tim Keller responds to what the skeptics might call the clue killer. Evolutionary biology insists that it has answers to all of these clues. The evolutionary biology viewpoint says that religious feelings are mere traits that helped our ancestors survive and have passed their genes on to us. And so belief in God was simply something that made people feel happier, made them less selfish, helped to strengthen family ties and, and groups for survival. Uh, some uh, skeptics point to the evidence of par- some paranoid beliefs that actually help certain species to survive, um, even better than accurate beliefs about the world. Well, in other words, uh, this attack against Christianity insists that religious beliefs just can't be trusted. The problem is this argument turns on the skeptic. If it's the case that we can't trust the belief-forming faculties of our minds, truth about God, how can we trust our mind to tell us anything, even evolutionary science? If our cognitive ability only tells us what we need to survive and not truth as it is, how can we trust anything? In all fairness, unbelievers can't apply the scalpel of their skepticism to what our minds tell us about God, but not apply that same skepticism to what our minds are telling us from modern science. Unguided evolution, if that is all there is, would merely create a dream world by which we pretend to know something real about our world and ourselves. However, belief in a God who exists gives us a sound basis to believe that our minds indeed work, whereas the view that there is no God gives us no reason to believe in the rational mind, that we can trust anything that we pretend to know. The irony is that the skeptics continue to use their reason anyway. It's borrowed capital from a Christian worldview. They have no good reason to trust that nature will go on as it has for, for generations. They have no reason to believe that love and beauty are real. And yet they keep on, depending upon these things that we all know inherently to be true and reliable. And so we can say that the secular worldview, though 
theoretically possible, doesn't make as much sense as the Christian view of a wise and benevolent creator God who has made our minds to reflect his glory. Well, we've considered various external clues that we find in the natural world. What about the clues that we find within us? We can appeal to the universal moral conscience that practically every human person possesses as a huge clue of the fact that there is a God who has imposed upon mankind a moral system, a code of right and wrong, truth and error. Now, in our postmodern age, there have been many, many attempts to relativize morality. However, all of these attempts have been shown to be mere cover-ups to dismiss traditional morality in favor of a new contemporary, more acceptable morality. Uh, Some skeptics, some unbelievers want to do away with perhaps old-fashioned sexual mores, Um, or perhaps get rid of capital punishment, but then want to embrace principles like tolerance, social justice for the poor, environmental concerns. Now, none of these are bad things. These are all things to consider. But you can't be selective when it comes to evaluating moral truths. Morality is not something you can just do away with. You can only replace one moral system with another moral system. And all moral systems, no matter how far removed they are from biblical standards, echo the thing that Paul teaches in chapter chapter 2, verse 15 of Romans, that the requirements of God's law are written on every human heart. They are inescapable, inescapable and a clue to God's handiwork that he indeed is the author of life. Now, in this past century, there was a major attempt to replace traditional categories of morality, sin, and judgment with a new psychological idea of, uh, of attempts to rid the human problem of shame and guilt. And uh, we could say that the therapeutic culture in which we live is an expression of rebellion against God the judge, offering up various recipes for how we may quiet and assuage our burdened consciences. But God's word is clear, that sinners' consciences are a witness to the truth of God's law and, in fact, accuse us of being lawbreakers. And so Paul in his appeal, has appealed to physical creation and the law within the human heart so that all men are left without excuse. While people continue to chafe at God, insisting that he is not left enough of a reliable witness for his existence, but in fact such persons have blinded themselves to the clues of God's existence and creation, and have made themselves deaf to the testimony crying within them of God's reality. Well, interestingly, the Bible is very realistic in exposing the extent to which men will suppress the truth and denying it, despite overwhelming evidence 
in God's support. One would think, after witnessing plague after plague, to the great devastation of Egypt, Pharaoh would relent and yield and acknowledge Israel's God and let Moses and the people go. And while Pharaoh did relent briefly, temporarily, to get some relief from the plagues, repeatedly he goes back on his promise to continue his system of oppression over Israel. And what Moses provides for us in the book of Exodus is a fascinating character study of looking at how Pharaoh increasingly hardens his heart and rejecting the clear evidence of God working in his midst. Until the point that God, in turn, hardens Pharaoh's heart, soldering his heart, so to speak, beyond the ability to repent. Well, in a similar teaching, Paul offer goes on in Romans 1 to say that God has given the pagans over to their sin as punishment and to leave them captive to their idolatry and their immorality. But you see, this is not just a problem for pagans. Jesus in his ministry contended repeatedly with the Pharisees and accused them of hardening their hearts. Despite his, despite his demonstration of miraculous powers and healing miracles in plain sight, the Pharisees, by and large, refused to believe him. In fact, they demanded more and more evidence that he was from God, when in fact they were hiding their hatred of the truth that he preached about God and his kingdom. And so despite the evidence to the contrary, the Pharisees and many many of the Jews rejected their Messiah and will be left without excuse on the day of judgment. Pharaoh and the Pharisees illustrate for us how fallen people need more than just evidence. They need heart change. They may come and believe and trust in God Almighty. One such inquiring Pharisee under cover of darkness came to Jesus to get further explanation on his teachings. But rather than get comprehension, uh, Nicodemus left more and more baffled over Jesus' teaching of the new birth and the work of the Holy Spirit within the human heart. Thankfully, later on, not only Nicodemus, but several of the Pharisees did turn to Christ with true, regenerate faith. You know, it's our responsibility as Christians to shine the spotlight upon the clues of God to point out to people the truth of God within their own hearts, to the clues within and the clues without amongst the creation, to point to the evidence of the very existence of God. But as Scripture informs us and as experience teaches us, you can debate and argue with somebody until you're blue in the face and not change their mind. What is needed is the Holy Spirit who also must change the heart. God indeed has left us a credible witness 
We would expect God to appeal to our rational minds, but we have already learned reason alone is not enough. God is only known through personal revelation. So in the end, the final clue to God is the person of Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate evidence of God's existence. It's only in Jesus that the puzzle is finally solved. He is the missing piece, the very image of the invisible God. Friends, as we enter into this Advent season and we celebrate the incarnation of Christ, who came and dwelt among us, our Emmanuel, God with us, who came to carry our burdens and deliver us from the curse. Let us worship. Let us praise him and honor him and recognize that God, in his wisdom, has written himself into the play. In the grand drama of salvation, God has come near to be one of the characters, to be the main character on center stage in time, space, and human history. And so, friends, as we labor faithfully, May we join God in the grand drama of salvation and point others to Christ, the true and living hope of all the nations. Let us pray.